You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi everyone, I am Martina Cunha and you are listening to Backstage Talk. Jonathan Larson asked, how can you make someone take off and fly in one of his songs from Tick Tick Boom? And I, for the past two years, have learned one way to do it, through the power of community. Welcome to the Latinx in Musical Theater special for season three of Backstage Talk, where we will be featuring artists from across all positions in musical theater, from several Latin American countries and different Latin heritages. I am proud to showcase my Latinx family. I hope you enjoy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Backstage Talk. Today's guest is Juan Ramirez. He is a writer for arts and culture reviews, features, and interviews for several publications, and will continue to do so until the very last person is annoyed. Thanks to his MA in Film and Media Studies from Columbia University, he has suddenly found himself the expert of queer melodrama in Venezuelan cinema and is figuring out ways to apply that. He writes constantly for Theaterly, for the New York Times, and a lot of other news outlets, so I am really excited to have Juan over for this episode. Hello, Juan. Thank you for being, and welcome to Backstage Talk. Hi, hi. Glad to be here. Um, the rumors are all true. What you just said and anything else you might have heard. <laughs> <laughs> all the rumors are true. So when All first... of them. Why shouldn't they be? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So for one of the first things I want to ask you is what made you choose the thespian path in life? Um, you know, I don't think I had much of a choice. I feel like as soon as you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a 90s baby. I grew up during the Disney Renaissance when all of these Broadway stars were like secretly singing to me my whole childhood, um, secretly because I didn't know that it was like Judy Kuhn, et cetera, um, who was Pocahontas. I think, I don't know, I was just always obsessed with like the, I don't know, the I don't want to say glitz, but like the showmanship and like the the razzle dazzle of, of Lion King of Hercules especially, which is I think the movie that put me onto just arts in general, like music. That's the one that I remember like learning all the songs to and all the little dances and you know how the muses interacted with each other. Um, that one put me onto like film because I think it's edited and just you know drawn and recorded so beautifully. And then eventually one thing led to another. Phantom came into my life. Wicked came into my life. Hairspray came into my life. Uh, and it's just, that's how, that's how it started in my, my early thespian uh, path. I love it. So how did all that took away into writing, journalism, being a critic in musical theater? 
Yeah, so I had never actually really given much of a thought about writing. I think it was my mom who was always telling me that I was a good writer because I would show her like my, you know, my, my school essays and stuff like that. And then I remember I went to a performing arts middle and high school for communications, which at the schools there meant like film, TV, journalism, speech and debate, and everyone sort of, you know, found their little niche within that. And I originally wanted to be a film director because I, I thought, you know, I love film. And if you're a kid who loves film, it's like, duh, I'll be a director. And then at some point I realized it wasn't for me. I didn't have like the, oh my God, I don't know, the stamina to be, to be a film director. Um, and I was getting sick of the class and a lot of my friends were in the school's news magazine. And it just became more and more appealing to me. And my mom, like, I think at one point was just like, you've always been a good writer. Why don't you just write about film or write about art? So I applied, I joined, I immediately got on the arts entertainment beat, became the editor, became a columnist, um, started reviewing, like, I remember I reviewed a Kid Cudi concert for in, back in high school. Um, I reviewed, like, I did a feature on American Horror Story season two. Uh, and yeah, I just realized, I mean, I, I love arts. I love being in proximity to arts, whatever that looks like. Um, and if if people like my writing and I don't completely hate the act of writing, I, I, I figured why not? And then sort of didn't do much of it the first semester of college. I actually went abroad because I went to Northeastern, which is crazy, and they will fully send you abroad your first semester of college. And then when I got back, uh, it was Boston winter, not much to do, didn't know too many people, picked up a copy of the Huntington News, which is the school's um, independent student newspaper, sort of got my way back into it. I wasn't doing much criticism or anything like that. And then what really sort of, you know, lit a fire under me to get back into it was there was a screening of the film Persona that was playing at the Coolidge Corner Theater that was sold out. I called the box office, asked, hey, it, it says it's sold out, but are there any like, you know, standby tickets or whatever? And the very rude box office person was like, no, it's sold out, hung up. So I emailed their press agent and told them I was covering for Huntington News. They got me in. Then I emailed Huntington News and was like, hey, I'm going to cover this. They were like, what? So after that, I realized that a good way to see things I want to see are for free is by writing about them, which is the more cynical way of describing it. But yeah, that is that is sort of what got me back into it. And I just saw so much theater in Boston, which is an amazing, has an amazing theater scene. And then one thing led to another, and now I'm here in New York doing something that I thought was, like, such a pipe dream back then, but then has more or less become, like, inevitable in a way, just in the in the way that I've been doing this for, like, seven, eight years now. That's um, amazing. But that's that's how it all happened. And now you're living the New York Live, going to Broadway shows, reviewing Broadway, off-Broadway, film, everything. Too many Broadway shows. Martin, it's been, what, 17 or 18? I didn't review all of them this season. There were a couple that literally just logistically I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, but yes, yes, I am living the, <laughs> the Broadway dreams. That's great. So what is your approach to journalism writing and critic in musical theater? How do you start? How do you approach a new work, a revival, all of that? Okay, um... I think in general, something I struggle with is objectivity in writing. 
which I guess is what draws me to criticism. Um, I think it is funny to say the least to be still performing objectivity in the year 2022. I feel like, you know, I mean, not to put too fine a point on like, you know, living in the post-truth, post-2016 era or whatever, but it's like, we all know we all have opinions and we all have biases and I don't see much of a point in, in hiding them. I'm not a reporter, so I'm not, you know, I'm not down at city hall, like getting the scoop from the mayor and just, you know, transcribing what he said and, and, you know, putting that out there for, for people to, to learn like that. So I don't try to take myself out of my writing too much. And I think I appreciate, I think the best voices in criticism are the ones that acknowledge that it's, it's a person who, who experiences these things and has certain reactions um, you know, if we if we have to be alive in this horrible hellscape of current humanity, you might as well make something out of the fact that you're alive and 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 not take yourself out of something. You know, like it's not what's a show I just reviewed, uh, Macbeth, for example, on Broadway. It's not a random person who went to go see Macbeth and is now telling you some objective thoughts. No, it was me. I'm the one who was sent there. I'm the one who's writing about it. Why should I take myself out of that equation? I think, you know, I think, and I think sort of, sort of younger writers are leading that charge. Um, you know, someone whose work I really appreciate, for example, is Helen Shaw over at New York Magazine, who I think also gets away, or not gets away, but is able to do this sort of not that objective writing because she writes for a magazine. Most of my criticism, most of my reviews are for Theaterly which is a website that um, <clears throat> my friend from back in Boston, Kobe Castle, started. And, you know, I think writing for a magazine or more of an online site like Theaterly gives you an advantage or gives you the opportunity to not have to stick to facts that much and, and just sort of make it an essay about your reaction to the show. Okay. So it's different. And, there, and there's, there's room for both. Like, for example, the New York Times, for which for which I've reviewed a couple shows, that is a newspaper. That is, you know, a paper of record, as they say. So when you are reviewing a show for the New York Times, you do sort of have to acknowledge that the readership is is mostly there for news. So that is some that is somewhere where I have to be like, okay, acting, let's say this, lighting, this, costumes, this. Mm-hmm. And that's very valid. And that's something that like, you know, I have I have the big book that Ben Brantley edited a few years back that's like a hundred or however many years of Broadway reviews is fantastic. And you can look at that as an actual record of what Broadway is. And you know, when, when society collapses and the aliens come back, they can find that book and be like, Oh wow, look what was going on. And that's, that's amazing. And there's, there's room for that. And I do love doing that sometimes, but I do appreciate the opportunity to, you know, write for theaterly where I can just sort of, you know, if the lighting didn't stick out to me, I'm not going to mention it. If this one little line in the third act reminded me of something my best friend told me 10 years ago, I have the room to go into this like giant, you know, completely detached whole segment. And hopefully, you know, if my editors don't think, what the hell are you talking about? Why are you going off on this tangent? You know, hopefully I think people could read that and say, oh, wow, maybe I'll go to the show and react similarly to to something um i think you know art is about 
bringing out emotions and bringing out memories within us. So I think the best compliment one can give um, a work of art is that it like made you feel something that's not just so concrete. And um, I will credit, actually, I haven't written about film in a, a minute, but one of my film editors over at Dig Boston, which is an alternative newspaper out in Boston, um, his name is Jake Mulligan. He followed me on Letterboxd, which is a like film social media tracker website. He followed me there and he said, look, I've, you know, I've, I've read your, your formal reviews. Those are great. But then I've read the reviews you write on Letterboxd when you're, you know, very clearly sort of like on the train back home and just like dashing off a few loose ideas without, you know, worrying about who's going to see them, about an editor looking over them. Why don't you channel that sort of same energy into your, you know, quote unquote, formal reviews mm-hmm. and see what happens. And I think that really sort of motivated me and got me out of this like precious writerly, journalistic, everything I have I have to write has to be this like monolith that stands the test of time. No, it can just be sort of not the first things that come to my head, but following that impulse of of this is what I felt and this is what I mainly took away from whatever it is I just saw. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you asked about revivals. I think, ooh, I mean, it's tough. I mean, we have so many revivals, and if they're not revivals, then they're, you know, uh, screen-to-stage adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I approach it as as, as I do anything else. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with revivals. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with screen-to-stage adaptations. I mean, like, I remember... Um, you know, one of my, my, my favorite party lines is to tell people that, like, you know, Gypsy, which is my favorite musical and I think the best American musical, um, is essentially, you know, like, a, if you want to read it this way, it's basically, like, a tabloidy musical about that time period's Kris Jenner. Like, it's about, like, this crazy momager who was, like, maybe she wasn't in the news back then, but you definitely knew who Gypsy Rose Lee was if you were alive in the, in the 50s. Um, so this idea that like, oh, all these musicals now are based on intellectual property or bio musicals, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, listen, Gypsy was a musical about like a famous stripper. We're like, let's call it what it is. It's amazing, but let's not act like, you know, like it's not suddenly, yeah, it's not that we're suddenly better. And if it's not based on that, it's based on the Greeks or it's based on someone's memoir or it's based on, you know, whatever. I'm not too, I'm just happy to see theater, whatever it's based on. As long as it's not too soulless, uh, I think I think if you have an in to a story and you want to tell it well, then I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. So, what piece of advice would you give a younger version of yourself? Um, memorize your social security number because you will be filling out so many W nines that your head will spin. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just get used to rejection. It's so funny because like. I've written a couple of, I've written a bunch of things actually that I'm very proud of, but I was thinking about this last night, actually, there are usually, I want to say maybe four times in the process of, of getting something written that are absolutely thrilling, no matter what. One is when you have the idea. The second is when your pitch gets greenlit. The third is when you go see the show, go interview the person or whatever. And fourth is when you submit the draft. Everything else, 
is really up in the air, you know, because from the from the pitching end, for every great feature that I land, there are 10 emails I sent, five of which went unanswered and five of which were passed. Um, and then once, you know, the writing process, the scheduling interviews can be a whole nightmare. The interview, sometimes I've had interviews where it's like, it's not my fault. It's not their fault. Maybe we just weren't in the mood to have conversation that day, but it just felt horribly awkward. And I'm just like, ah, this is going to suck. Maybe it winds up sucking. Maybe it doesn't. I hope they haven't <laughs> most of them. Um, and once you write them, you know, it's like, I've had pieces that linger in the editing process or if it's for print in the publication process for so long that by the time they come out, I'm like, oh yeah, right. You know, I, um, speaking of revivals, I interviewed Beanie Feldstein, um, for team magazine. I think I interviewed her back in like November mm-hmm. and the magazine came out like two weeks ago or something. So of course, I mean, it's amazing to have it in my hands and everything, but by the time it actually comes out, I'm like, oh yeah, huh forgot I did this kind of or people ask me like oh my god what did she say about so and so and I'm like this was months ago way I can't back. tell you yeah um all of a very roundabout way of saying get used to rejection get used to um patience like you would not believe every pitch you send out is basically a job application if especially if it's an editor you haven't worked with before and you have to do the whole hi my name is Han I'm a Manhattan-based cultural critic and writer like blah 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 um that's also very specifically like the freelancer hustle. Um, I am staffed as Theater Lou's chief critic, but everything else I write is completely up to me pitching an editor and hoping it sticks. And after it sticks, it works out. There's so many people involved in everything. Publicists, agents, managers, uh, bookers. Like, it's a lot. Um, so just be patient. Trust that what you are doing might hopefully lead to something i mean for example i i recently you know befriended and made a really good connection with an editor who i had no idea knew i was living and breathing on this planet but she reached out and was like hey i read your review of you know x show and i totally agree with your thoughts on x casting do you want to interview them and i was like i had no idea you even knew who i was or were out here reading my reviews like that so, you know, every now and then something comes along that makes you, that reminds you, oh yeah, someone is hopefully reading this and, and taking something away from this and um, trying to give me money to write more things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you as a writer coming from Latin America, you get to see a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big topic for this season is representation and visibility specifically for the Latinx community. So I wanted to ask you, what is visibility and representation for you? Um, you know, I have so many thoughts. I think I have so many thoughts. I, um, I applaud the efforts made recently, um, by, by sort of all the artistic industries in, in, um, Increasing visibility and representation. I think, you know, uh, like any other social movement, any other, you know, whatever, like the pendulum sort of swings both ways. And there are times when I believe uh, we are overcorrecting in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I would rather overcorrect and have it go where we're seeing a lot of, you know, quote unquote, visibility and representation that I might not absolutely love than seeing none or seeing the wrong kind. Um, 
I think ultimately the solution, sure, the solution to the issue of of not having enough, um, you know, marginalized identities or identities you don't typically see in in the U.S. is to just give. Is to, is to start that conversation at the seed with the writer. For example, um, it doesn't mean much to me if, like, hmm. There is, of course, the net positive of casting uh, Latin and, like, actors of color in, you know, quote-unquote, uh, racially blind roles. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this is, like, a generic role that you're just so happening to fill with with a person of color or with, you know, whatever, um, which I think is great, but I, I, I love when the sort of work comes from within the story itself. You know, we have like Lima Nil Miranda, who, about whom I have plenty of thoughts, but I was listening to the In the Heights um, soundtrack yesterday and I was like, this is beautiful. This is such like a well-written show written for Latinos. Like it's, it's very much, I don't want to say for us, by us, but it, it is very much like the, the call is coming from inside the house. That's a show that I think is beautiful. Then we have something else he's done, like Hamilton, where to this day, I don't understand what we're trying to say by casting people of color in those roles. Again, there is the net positive of, you know, the absolute biggest blockbuster of the century, probably, um, is continuing to you know, hold space and then hold casting for for people of color, which is amazing. That's amazing. Conceptually, it turns my stomach a little that we're like brownwashing these like slave owners from back in the day and being like, now they're rapping. Don't know what that means, to be honest with you. So it's weird. You know, um, there are so many ways of going about uh, um, inclusion and representation and visibility. But I think we're generally headed in the right direction. Um, And look, it's going to be a lot of, it's going to be a lot of discourse. Everything's going to be a lot of discourse here on Twitter too. I remember when, for example, Matthew Lopez won uh, for uh, the inheritance last Tony Awards. And that's a whole conversation where I don't even completely know where I stand. He is Latino and I believe he's the first to win. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. for, For writing a play. And he should celebrate that. But then, on the other hand, every interview he gave was very like, and I am the first Latino, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, yeah, babe, but the play you wrote is pathologically white to the point where it's like, ooh, this is so extremely, this like Upper West Side Hamptons fantasy. Am I taking away the fact that he's the first Latino playwright? No, absolutely not. But then it's like, let's investigate what it is you won for. But also, why investigate? I'm happy for him. It's like, it's like you know, it's a, huge work um and the fact that we're having these conversations at all um and again we can't ignore the fact that it opens doors and that's you know we're just sort of pushing our way through and and hoping just the 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 broader society gives us um that space yes yeah but yeah i also i guess in, in other terms and not just latino but like you know, if you want to talk like all my identities, I'm an immigrant, I'm Venezuelan, I'm, I'm queer. There is sort of this like, again, um, tendency to overcorrect with 
for example, there was such a pe- long period of time where the quote unquote bury your gaze trope was happening where it's like any queer character on stage like has to die because like their life is so tragic and like, mm-hmm. you know, like the story ends with them killing themselves because they can't cope or, or you know, if it's set at a certain time period, they get AIDS and die and like, it's so sad. So there's this, like this overcorrection or this rather this tendency to want to correct that by focusing on joy. And it's like a lot of people are calling for, oh, I want to see queer joy on stage, on film. I want to see Latino joy, black joy, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's an amazing impulse. And I think it's something to keep in the back of our heads. But at the same time, I don't necessarily go to the theater to witness joy. You know, like I want to see catharsis. I want to see drama. I want to see tension. So I don't necessarily want to go see a bunch of gays playing patty cake on stage. Um, but I do want to see some like fuller representations of 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 like marginalized people's lives and livelihoods but i don't think an overemphasis on quote unquote joy is the solution to you know centuries of being relegated to tragedy i think tragedy can be useful um it just depends on how you tell it and, and what the outcome is and who's telling it but you know again i just want to see people on stage yeah so what is the most important part of Latin critics in an American industry like Broadway? Everyone has a different point of view. And I think the more, you know, diversity in, in our you know, critics roster that we have, the better. That said, um, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't walk into a show thinking of myself as like, oh, I'm here as a Latino critic. I mean, I sort of do because it's a, if it's a press agent who doesn't know me, like I am very white. And so I might get ID'd when I when I say my name, um, but you know I have I have my experiences behind me. Um, you know, recently actually, I gave um, a friend of mine from from Huntington News back at Northeastern invited me to speak on a panel at the New Jersey Boys and Girls Club, and this one Asian American girl um, asked a question about you know I, I I recently read your review of the Chinese lady, which I thought was great, but how do you as a non Asian person enter the show how do i enter a show like the chinese lady i am neither chinese nor a lady but it's a show about emigrating to a country when you're really young which i did i moved to the u.s when i was nine um so when i see a show like that it's like okay i can relate to you on this experience i'm not going to speak on anything about chinese themes or about uh you know asian american themes that don't necessarily belong to me to speak to but i can absolutely relate and even if i wasn't an immigrant i mean even if i was just like the absolute most American homegrown white boy with zero uh, in to the story. Art is supposed to be universal. So I don't know if like there is less value in, in a, in a, um, in a writer that's not directly uh, related to the experiences portrayed on stage reviewing it than to someone who is. I think in a lot of ways there is, you know, not not to follow up my long rant against objectivity with this, but there are benefits sometimes to being a complete outsider and being like, well, I have nothing to do with this, but I thought on an artistic level, it succeeds this way, it fails this way, it made me feel this way because of that. But again, I think the more critics we have and the more diversity we have, the better. I don't need, for example, I don't think the solution, or I wouldn't want a... Latino show, like whatever the new In the Heights is, to come out and just have a bunch of Latinos review it. That would be incredibly boring, first of all. And 
you know, then it, it might become too much of an insider conversation. And Broadway is the largest stage in the U.S. for, I don't, I don't know, for a reason, but it is. Um, I want to read everyone's voices. That's why I really like, you know, the the the, the new aggregator site, the, Did They Like It, where it's like, I can go on there and read, okay, this, like, straight cis white person reviewed this, this, like, trans queer black person reviewed, like, this, and, like, sort of see this, like, tapestry of, of opinions. Um... And there's also, I think, the slippery slope of of following the impulse to only want people uh, whose identities are on stage to be reviewing it. I don't think the solution to our problems of um, lack of diversity in, in the industry are to have, like, only the queer critics review the queer shows, only the Asian critics review the Asian shows. I think that's a very slippery slope, especially considering the fact that we're still we're still getting there. So if we follow that, then we're gonna just have white critics reviewing the white shows because that's that is mostly what we have. Um, but again, I think just the most the more voices we have, the better. And you yeah. know, that's that's how conversations start. Yeah, absolutely. Juan, thank you so much for being here. I have loved this conversation too. It's another point of view in our industry. Um, if someone wants to follow me on social media, see where you're writing, um, want to have you on their magazine newspaper blog um where can they find you my brand is extremely strong so it's uh it's number juan across the board um mind the it's there is someone out there whose at is just number juan who has been getting a lot of my overflow follows throughout the years <laughs> my at is it's number juan um my email is it's number juan at gmail.com if you are an editor who is listening to this and want to assign me something Awesome. And one last question before we wrap up. Yep. Which are your top five favorite musical theater shows? You mentioned Gypsy as number one, but which are the other four? Okay, so we have Gypsy, Dolly, Spring Awakening, Chicago. Uh, oh, okay, Evita. Listen, oh my God, that is a desert island album for me. Not even just in terms of like my favorite cast recording, just in terms of like, that is literally one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, Patti LuPone, Mandy Patinkin are at the absolute height of their craft. Um, have I seen a perfect production? No. Have I seen a decent production? Kind of. Um, I think that musical gets uh, critiqued a lot for being either like a glorification of, of um, Eva Peron or um, like a total damnation of her. I don't think it's either. I think Angela Weber actually wrote a pretty ambivalent score um, I think it's just been portrayed and produced in a way that leans into the sort of glamour and gives her all of these big diva moments that sort of derail what the text is, I think, trying to say. Um, but listen, that score absolutely slaps. And it's just so good. It's just so, so, so good. I will listen to that. That is my, like, cleaning the house, packing, especially packing album. I know it. Like I could, I'm literally off book on every single part for every single scene. I love it so much. So Gypsy, Hello Dolly, Spring Awakening, Chicago, and Evita. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> this you. has been amazing. Thank you for being part of the Latinx and Musical Theory special. I cannot wait to keep reading your reviews to see what you put out there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of Backstage Talk. 
Remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Backstage Talk Podcast. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.